0: This is Me, Myself and Disaster, the show all about disasters with a human focus. From hurricanes to humanitarian issues, we journey across fault lines to explore trends in disaster preparedness, response and recovery. Over to you, Josh
1: and Andrew. Hello and welcome back to Me, Myself and Disaster, the show where we talk all things disaster with a human focus. Before we jump into today's episode, take a listen to this... That's the sound of an alarm in the cockpit of an Airbus A380. These alarms went off 125 times back in 2010, shortly after Qantas flight QF32 departed Singapore bound for Sydney. One of the four engines on the plane had exploded, severing wires and rendering much of the aircraft system useless. Today, we're speaking to the captain of this aircraft to learn
0: more about what happened. Andrew Who's joining us on the show today? Josh, today we're speaking with Captain Richard DeKrepney, who managed to safely land the plane and save the lives of everyone on board. Since the age of 14, Richard wanted to be a pilot. He joined the Royal Australian Air Force at age 17 and flew in numerous roles including Air Force transport jets and helicopters before joining Qantas to fly the 747 Jumbo jet in 1986. Richard was one of the first pilots trained to fly the Airbus A380 Super Jumbo and flew all over the world. Today we'll be asking Richard about staying calm during a crisis, his leadership journey and the importance of constantly exercising and practicing. Join us as we take flight with Captain Richard Decrepney here on Me, Myself, and Disaster. Richard, thanks for joining us and welcome to the show.
2: Pleasure, Andrew. Pleasure, Josh. Great to be here.
0: Josh and I were actually just taking off out of Singapore last week. I think we looked across at each other in the the plane and having read your books, thinking about what may have happened or what happened back on the 4th of November in 2010 when QF32 took off out of Changi bound for Sydney. Can you take us through how
2: that day unfolded? Sure. It was to be just a normal flight from Singapore to Sydney, take about eight hours, and it was a clear sky, good weather. Anyway, we took off and four minutes after takeoff, engine number two exploded. Uh, The engine, uh, when it exploded, pieces of the turbine uh, energised about 400 pieces of shrapnel that cut up the, uh, almost cut the engine off the wing, put holes in many fuel tanks, Uh, It's about 400 impacts on the fuselage, broke about 650 wires, destroyed half the networks, affected about 21 out of the 22 systems. So it took about an hour and a half to work out what we had left that was working before we could make our approach to land. And even after we landed, the emergency went on for another two hours because more things failed on the ground. So all up, uh, there there were just hundreds of things that went wrong over the four hours, and uh, it's called the black swan, which is a low probability unexpected, but very serious accident. So uh, the QF32 was a black swan event, but uh, we all came out of it with zero injuries.
0: It's fairly scary. And uh, we're looking today from an emergency management and crisis management context. And one of the things, reading both your book, QF32 and Fly, it's really interesting to read around when the actual event happened, there are about 125 alarms going off. And to put that into emergency management context, it's like 125 jobs constantly or 125 fires happening at once. How did you maintain calm at that time when you're in this aircraft cabin and trying to sort of navigate everything? How did you maintain calm and think through the actual problem to make a decision?
2: Well, there's a few parts to this. The first part is that when the unexpected happens, it might be an explosion, then the amygdala in your brain, the very fast response system, it's a lizard brain, uh, that re- re- results in the fight, flight, or freeze response. That triggers in 50 milliseconds. Your logical cortex part of the brain won't even register anything for one second or 20 times further on in time, and you won't get a reasoning to appraise all the sensors coming in to, make, to think about it for about 30 seconds. So for the first 30 seconds, you are succumbing to the fight, flight, or freeze response, which can be very dangerous. It's okay if you're running away from a tiger. It's very dangerous if you're operating heavy equipment. So pilots are trained to do what we call aviate, navigate, communicate, so, aviate is fly the airplane, stay alive. If you're in a fire engine and there's a fire, get you know get to cover, protect yourself, get out of the place. Uh, navigate, find a safe place in the airplane that could be above the mountains uh, in a safe heading. So, find a safe place and then, then communicate, then talk to someone. Now, the pilots taught to do that to overcome the fear response, and bearing in mind. You, you can overcome the fear response. We've learned that when lightning goes off, the thunder will come. So we are not afraid of thunderclaps. The dogs that can't predict the thunder are. So you can, by experience, by learning the difficult things that scare you, by exposing yourself to these difficult things, you can learn to overcome and prevent or inhibit the fear response. That's what pilots do. We aviate, navigate, communicate through the first 30 seconds, and then we get on with thinking logically through the problem. Now, it's easy to underestimate the significance of that because most people do. But in a crisis, in that first 30 seconds at least, about 15% of the people will do something that is the correct decision, 70% of the people follow the crowd and 15% of the people will make a decision that is contrary to their survival. You might throw them a life jacket on a boat that's sinking and they're frozen and they won't put it on. So the first 30 seconds, this fear response is a critical thing to understand and to train to overcome. And that's what makes the difference between an expert in disaster recovery and... Uh, an academic or a novice.
1: Yeah, I find that fascinating because I, I've, you know, obviously Andrew and I started our careers in the emergency management space in incident management teams working operation and you quite have that feeling where you're getting so much thrown at you and your brain's trying to comprehend all these different um, concepts and theories and inputs and trying to, you know, analyse that. I can, you know, I can tell the listeners have definitely been in that 30 second of, uh, of chaos where you just don't know which way is up and which way is down and, and amazing and I think there's a lot that we can learn in our sector around from the aviation sector Sector around how we can possibly incorporate some of those strategies into our incident management teams, but you made a very interesting point that the disaster didn't ha- didn't stop when you hit the ground. When you landed that plane, that incident kept going for two hours. But I imagine it would have been in a different gear to that kind of immediate, chaotic, um, you know, life threatening in the air, but. Can you talk us through, in terms of being on the ground, what were some of the key challenges that faced you when you were there and then how did you manage that? Because I know obviously debriefing the crew is a big thing that you talk about in your book.
2: All right. So first of all, there are people's perceptions. My perception was that it was more different, more dangerous in the air than on the ground. And just at the back of the cockpit, we had another Czech captain and he his perception was it was more dangerous on the ground. So perceptions vary. People see different things. Um when we got on the ground, we have an engine that wouldn't shut down. It, it, it was uncontrollable. We had four tonnes of fuel leaking on the ground, and 30-degree runway in the sunshine. Uh, kerosene or jet fuel is very high impedance. So it's a bit like walking over carpet and touching a button on a lip, you get a yeah. shock. Even just walking, over, walking through kerosene with shoes on the ground can create sparks to yeah. ignite the kerosene. So that's very dangerous. Uh, there are There fire engines around that spray foam and fire engines have many times uh, covered people in foam and then accidentally run over them. Uh, we, if you come down the slides, you might uh, concertina into someone else behind you and break their uh, hips, or you might cut yourself on broken glass on the ground because someone was carrying their duty-free grog off the aircraft when they oh. slid down the slide. There are all these risks. There are yeah. so many risks. And so at least 15% of people who come down the slides will end up in the hospital. I think if we evacuated the passengers down the slides uh, that day, I think we would not have people here today because the top slide is eight meters. So just imagine going to your swimming pool a three meter diving board, double that. And then having a slide going down to 45 degrees onto hot concrete and putting your 80 year old father going down that slide. Mm. So, very dangerous. And now these are just some of the threats that we face. The, the, actually the aircraft electrics failed. We went from a half a million watts of uh, generating capacity down to two car batteries and eventually down to one iPad. We lost six out of our seven radios. We lost nine out of our 10 computer screens. So the aircraft degraded so significantly more on the ground. And so that black swan event that we thought was over when we landed up to two hours went for another two hours. And we, thought, so we got passengers off after the two hours on the ground. And then the next part of the crisis happened because people were then leaving aircraft going to the terminal and the main problem in a crisis is no one and this is what creates fear in people no one takes control or authority there's no single point of contact I mean if you had to try and contact a Qantas company at that time well there's there's almost no Qantas phone number on the website anyway Mm. and if you did call you might wait for hours so no one takes responsibility there's no single point of contact and so this these are vectors for fear. So it's very easy for people subjected to crises to panic and they're not satisfied. Everyone with a mobile phone is a journalist in a crisis and they're tweeting, they're on social media, they're on the TV. And so the job of accident or crisis uh, managers or leaders is to ensure we keep all the people that that are Uh, suffering from this crisis, informed with a single point of contact, and they're being looked after, they're getting what they want, they're being cared for, and most importantly, they know who to call if they've got a problem. After QF32, I gave three debriefs, or the passengers had three debriefs. Each debrief took 45 minutes. Uh, The first 15 minutes was what was happening, why, what we needed the passengers to do and how long it would take. Uh, We debriefed them on meeting the press, telling them facts about the aircraft, the incident, Rolls Royce, Airbus, to protect their reputations, and we said this is what the media is going to ask. And you, you know, you will know when you walk out of the terminal more than anyone else knows about this incident in the world. And so, please, when you go out, the media is going to try and put a negative spin on everything. So here's what you can tell them: Well, the engines only fail one in every three hundred and fifty thousand engine hours, and only four, or well, one in four pilots will ever see an engine failure in the whole career. So this was just bad luck but the engines are safe. Rolls-Royce is a great company. I respect Rolls-Royce and I'll happily fly on them. And you should be pleased because you seeing this incident will protect other passengers, your friends and neighbors and family from seeing an engine failure. So we gave them all these defenses. So when they went out to meet the press and the press said that Qantas is a lousy company, the A380 is broken and the passengers were frightened. Um, an Airbus make rotten aircraft, the passengers actually took control of the media and they turned what was by default going to be a crisis and negative, resp- negative um, um, outcome for the company brand. The media realised there was nothing to hold to. to do that. They had to switch their story into a positive and they said, yes, hasn't this turned out well? So the media at the time of the QF32 the media towards Qantas is very much like the media is towards Qantas now, where they can't take a trick, and if there's a delay, everyone hears about it. But uh, and so that's the the atmosphere we had when QF32 happened, just like the atmosphere today. But Qantas came out of the QF32 with a brand much improved, and it was because of the way we kept the passengers informed. We told them what was happening. We told them the truth because you can't hide it. You can't hide the truth because everyone with a mobile phone is going to be broadcasting. Tell them the truth, give them full and open disclosure and give them personal guarantee. And the personal guarantee for QF32 was that I gave all the passengers my mobile phone number so they could call me. Everyone knew that if we hadn't told them something or if they had a question, or they needed help and they weren't getting what they wanted, then they could call me and I could fix it. Now, that was also a really good um, audit on Qantas Mm. because if the passengers are ringing me, they're not happy. What it means is Qantas isn't doing their job. So when I get my mobile number out, I don't know, it may have put the fear of God into all the Qantas um, support people because now they knew that I would have all the metrics on how well they were covering it. And I can say that Qantas did a most remarkable job. I only got 20 calls from the uh, 460 passengers Mm. who were on that aircraft, and they were all complimentary. So I know that Qantas did a perfect job, but that full and open disclosure and the personal guarantee is critical if you want to come out of the crisis well.
1: And I think there is a lot of links as well to what we do in the emergency management space because it, as you're right, it's it's not only um, managing the incident at hand and keeping people safe, but then also we all have this job around company brand and public messaging. And obviously for us as emergency managers, the trust that the community has in us is our goal. That's how we, that's our currency. That's how we trade because the next incident, if we don't have that trust, people won't listen to us. People won't follow direction and people won't take us seriously. So I think there's some really interesting tangents uh, you know, lessons to learn from your story that emergency managers can use in theirs. And I think, talk us through, because I think at one point you were actually, um, you know, this notion of taking control of the situation and controlling the narrative, because I think at one point you were actually told not to leave the aeroplane. And, and, and for, for you, you know, it was almost like this spy novel where you took your hat and smiled confidently at the security guard and said, no, I'm, I'm walking off here and I'm going to address my passengers.
2: First of all, just two things. One is when you're in a crisis, as a general rule, when you think you've communicated enough, double it, because yeah. you haven't. Um, you can't communicate enough. And we just kept talking to the passengers. Every 10 minutes, even if there wasn't any update, we told them, we gave them public address every 10 minutes. When I was getting instructions to the cabin crew about what was happening, I just pressed the global intercom button and every passenger heard what I was telling the the cabin crew. Everyone knew what was going on. There was no one being kept in the dark. You tell them the truth because you can't hide it. It will eventually come out. There's too many recorders now. You can't hide the truth. Get it out there and stop all the um, conspiracies from launching, right? Yeah. So that's the lesson. Just communicate through the crisis and and that will solve a whole lot of the problems. When it came to leaving the aeroplane after the two hours on the ground, uh, you're right, Josh, in that I walked down the stairs and I was in a heightened state of alarm And I was very stressed because I was convinced that I was about to be arrested. And there are so many cases that go on uh, in the last in the last 20 years that whenever there's an incident, the police will naturally just arrest the flight crew and take them away. This is the worst thing to do in a crisis. Mm. So I had I was predicting to be arrested. So I was going walking down those stairs and I looked at the police officer at the bottom and said, you will take me to the to the departure lounge in the terminal where the passengers are now. And I said it really loudly because if they were going to try and arrest me, I was going to fight them. Mm. And I was ready to fight. I was absolutely going to resist. So um, many pilots have been arrested. They lose the ability to talk to the passengers. They lose the ability to manage the crisis. And that's where a whole lot of problems start. So I had been prepared. And this is really the whole the whole thing about resilience in crises will always happen. Mm. If if we solve one, another one will come. And the pace of technology means we'll have more crises continuing to come, not less. This is not so much a bad time at the moment. There'll be crises coming forever. So the idea of managing crises is to first of all be prepared, to be resilient in the way you have are prepared to face these crises. And if you are resilient, then in the preparation and the execution of the crisis management, you will absolutely come out uh, with a hopefully like a brand in Qantas better than when it went in. And it's interesting too, seeing people who who
0: are scared of flying, they drive their car to the airport with greater risk of crashing their car than getting onto a plane. Planes are very safe. And I'm wondering for you, because you've had more than one engine failure. It's always my fear getting onto a plane. I do fly a lot and kind of go. It always feels very safe on Qantas, but you do kind of go, one day my risk of an engine failure is probably rising the more I fly. But I'm wondering, you talk in the book around being in a state of chronic unease as a way of building resilience and being prepared for anything. Do you think that given your exposure to these incidents and years of training with Qantas and the RAF, does this help you to stay in that state of chronic unease and be prepared for anything?
2: I think to be resilient, we must expect the unexpected. We must be comfortable being uncomfortable and we ideally are trained as best as we can in our knowledge, training, experience, teamwork, leadership, decision-making, crisis management, and risk, and even prepared to anticipate post-traumatic stress and how to cover it. We need to do all that preparation, and and this is... Uh, if you want to survive the difficult things in life, then you have to actually subject yourself to them. The American military know they have to have their pilots train in war-type conditions of very low-flying, high-speed, dangerous things where people die. They still have to subject them to those environments if they're going to have – pilots that are capable of flying in a war because we don't want their fear response to come out. Anyone can graduate from a course and be proficient, Mm. but you will not be competent until you have experience because the experience will give you exposure to the things that have scared you. A good pilot is a pilot that's been scared. A good response person is a person who's been to a crisis and seen it because (laughs) – there's a great quote that most people's plans dissolve in, in, in a war. The army's plans dissolve when the first shot is fired. So you need to keep calm when the crisis is happening. And so we need not just to be proficient, we need to be competent through experience. We need to challenge ourselves with deliberate practice, which is practice of things that are outside our area of, of, of comfort. We've got to t- train that things are hard and that we will fail. So we we fail, we we accept failure as a stepping stone to success. We learn about the failures, we adjust and we retry. And you just keep doing that, you never stop. Deliberate practice is a never stopping process of building up your skills all the time and knowing that you will never be perfect. An individual human can never be perfect, but teams can be resilient. So you need to practice deliberate practice, which is doing the things outside your comfort zone, having a, a a chronic unease for the status quo, thinking that, well, if it's clear skies today, well, there's about to be a thunderclap coming in or an earthquake or something. And are you ready? In the 35 years of flying, I had a Qantas. I never had a boring time in the aeroplane in the air because if there was actually not much to do when we're over the ocean, we would do what ifs about the engine fails or there's a smoke or a fire, or the hydraulics fail. We're always doing what ifs being ready. So if those things did happen, we wouldn't be surprised. And I've never had a boring time on the ground when I flew away in Qantas because I was away for half the time because I did research into all these areas, research into fires and crises and uh, and uh, human factors or the psychology and physiology. So you need the chronic if you're in crisis management. You need to study As much as you can, you will never get to the end of it. You certainly need to understand the psychology and the physiology of the human being because that'll tell you about what the human can do, how it behaves, how it responds, and how you design things for it. So that is very important. Uh, pre-training to being in to being a resilient person because when you understand your brain and how you respond and how you learn and how you lead and how you're a good team member and how you make decisions because there are many kinds these are all the elements of resilience you need to manage a crisis or to survive it
1: Oh, this is just a fascinating conversation, and I hope people have got their listening ears on because there are so many practical steps here that many emergency managers I, I see in our day to day lives that could really utilize some of this to to better themselves in in their field. And and I think a good friend of the of the podcast and me may know Mark Crosweller, a former uh, head of Emergency Management Australia, always used to use the term "You need to think about the unimaginable." You know, test beyond the limits. Craig Fugate, who we've had on the show before, talks about the former administrator for FEMA talks about you know getting away from government-centric exercising exercising the plans for success and exercising for failure and trying to push yourself into a space where you do fail so you see where the gaps are um richard can you talk us about because i know in, in in fly you talk about this very subject around nine eleven and how a well-practiced plan actually helped to save thousands of lives can you talk us about that notion of almost in a sense exercising to fail or pushing yourself beyond those limits in those safe environments
2: Yes, one of the – well, first of all, black swan event, which we've discussed, is uh, something which no one expected. But that is reference the uh, recipient. uh, A turkey that is being bred for a year will grow up with with unlimited food and can have sex with the other animals and the hens. And life is great until that – the night before Thanksgiving when he loses his head. So the the night before Thanksgiving is absolutely a black swan for the turkey, but it's not a black swan for the people who rear the animal to to have it for Thanksgiving. So the concept of a black swan is relative to the observer. Uh, And 9-11 was an interesting case because most people didn't expect it. But there was one person that did anticipate 9-11 occurring. His name was Rick Rescora, and he worked for Morgan Stanley. He was an ex-military person. He had actually, when he was working at Morgan Stanley, forecast that someone would drive a truck with explosives into the car park of the World Trade Center and try and bring down the buildings. Uh, They didn't believe him until it happened. And so then the Morgan Stanley Bank agreed to listen. You know, they 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 respected Rick Rescora after that. And then he forecast that someone would fly an aircraft into the towers to destroy them. So they had actually planned to move out of the Twin Towers. But anyway, when the they had to let the lease run out, and in the meantime, the aircraft flew into the towers on 9-11, and the Port Authority told everyone to stay inside the other, sub, the Southern Tower, because that wasn't hidden and that was safe. And that was, Rick said, this is ridiculous. He had already prepared for, for an aircraft hitting the building. He had had his staff, three and a half thousand staff have been doing training, evacuating downstairs, having buddies to protect. He'd had them do that. He said, you are not staying in the building, you're getting out now. And he was singing to them as they went down the, uh, the stairs because they didn't take the lift. They went down the stairs of the building. And out of 3,500, about only 10 didn't survive. And five of those were the security people who were checking everyone out. So that story of 9-11 is one that Rick Rescora had predicted it. He had trained all his staff and they weren't happy with the training. They were frustrated they had to practice evacuations. But when 9-11 happened, they just followed the procedure and they all got out. Rick didn't. And they even had the buddies. So there were disabled people. One, there's a famous picture of, a, of one Morgan Stanley employee. He was responsible for getting uh, one of the disabled people out and he could be seen carrying her on his shoulder as he walked down the street took um, a wave with this cloud approaching as a building collapsed and It's still emotional today. Mm. But Rick was truly, Morgan Stanley was truly resilient and uh, that, that is a remarkable story.
0: That is, yeah, it's very uh, sombre but it's amazing that so many survived at the same time, isn't it? Like just getting that many people out of that building um, in those circumstances Rick.
2: which were totally unexpected. Chronic unease. Yeah. yeah. Is that chronic unease? And I wanted to ask, and, this and the other, if you don't want to, if you don't understand chronic disease, think of pre-mortem. But before you go to do something, you have a meeting with everyone saying, "Look, we want to buy a new vehicle or build a new building. Okay, let's have a meeting. Tell me why it's going to fail. And everyone will then be asked to to present what they think could be wrong uh, if there if there's a strong Command gradient and people are afraid to criticize the leader or su- suggest something different, then the pre-mortem is a way to get around that. So um, yeah, if more people had pre-mortems, there'd be a lot less crises in the world.
0: As you work as part of a team, it's a very close-knit team, I understand, in the cockpit. And particularly, this is a quite a, an interesting situation on QF32. You had a number of extra staff in the cockpit for check captains and someone being checked as the check captain. It was quite a, an interesting sort of unique situation, it sounds like. But one of the things, and this applies both to aircraft and emergency management, there's a risk of groupthink, and I've seen it before where you're talking about evacuating a town and people are too scared to speak up and they kind of don't say anything, even though everyone in the room is thinking, oh, we probably should say something, but and a bit scared to say it. But this is something, the work in a cockpit and other pilots is really important not to have groupthink because sometimes, and some of the things that came out of the QF32 book um, show that individual members of the team had certain opinions which saved the aircraft. So how do you avoid groupthink in this situation and how do you make better decisions um, trusting your team to do some of that thinking?
2: Traditionally, the chairman and the CEO and the board members, all these leaders at the top will dictate policy and ideas. Some of them won't welcome other ideas. And that command grading can be so steep that uh, people won't, well, they feel they don't have the psychological safety to challenge authority and say, hey, what, you You need to listen to me. You're wrong. It's not going to work. But if there's no psychological safety for people to speak up, then accidents, well, they have happened because of that. So the way to get people to speak up is you can tell them. And before every flight, I would say, I'm human. I'm the captain, but I will make mistakes. And I demand that you tell me when I make a mistake and uh, you can prioritize when to tell me. But if you tell me I'll make a mistake, then that's great because I'll fix it and hopefully it won't happen again. And I said, if you do not tell me when I've made a mistake, I will punish you. Hmm. And so there's an aggressive way of giving people the authority to challenge the command because the aim is not to satisfy the ego. You see, if you're egocentric, then, then yes, every flight by an aircraft captain is one where he is he's the hero, but that's not the aim. The aim is never never me. The aim is the safety of the passengers. The aim is to get them home. And if I've made a mistake, those passengers deserve the dignity of the, cabin, of the everyone else, anyone else telling me I've made a mistake so I can correct it. The other way to get everyone to contribute is to do what I call the ramp. And many times on the QF32 situation, if, if we had to make some quick decisions, I would start at the bottom of the command gradient or you know the most junior person say what do you think here's the challenge what do you think and i work from the most junior up to the senior and the junior will say what he thinks everyone can say well i think i agree with him but or maybe i don't agree with him but by starting at the bottom you get all the ideas and the nice thing is as soon as you get enough ideas that you agree with and you think you're all on the same path, you can terminate it. So many times on QF32, I didn't have to say anything about the outcome because working through the ramp and the bottom up, they all agreed this was a path and I agreed with them, said done. And so it's done two things. I think we've got the optimum decision by merging the most brains into one cohesive, uh, unified mental model. But the second thing is, well, now we all know what's happening. And so there's situational awareness by everyone as to not just what's happened or what is, but what's about to happen. And so we go forward together with a common mental model that is very powerful in a crisis. So the ramp is really good to stopping groupthink. think. And if the leaders sometimes there's not time to do a ramp, uh, you just have to make a decision quickly. And that's the job of the leader. Uh, Sometimes there's time to make a formal decision making process that can take minutes. So there are many ways to make decisions and everyone needs to be aware of what type of decision making process is suitable for a given situation.
1: Leadership is such a key skill and and obviously in that example as well, like having that position of leadership has obviously such a an immense burden and it's, and it's a responsibility and and I think it's so important obviously in your story richard uh, for for the airline industry the leadership and strong leadership and um, you know leadership that is aware of of themselves is so important and it's so important in emergency management as well we talk a lot about having leaders that can you know admit when things are wrong we've seen a lot of emergency situations where people become so committed to an outcome because of ego or because they don't want to admit that they're wrong and uh, you know unfortunately the the outcome is catastrophic and it's devastating and it's not the individual in the leadership position that bears the cost it's the people on the ground and community so such an important conversation I'd really like to understand for you, though... You know, what, like QF32, and, 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 you know, we spoke about this before we started reading, uh, before we started recording this podcast, you know, and, and I encourage everyone to go and read Richard's book. Obviously, QF32 is about the what, you know, this is really how it shaped your thinking and really started your journey into this resilience space. And I guarantee, and I would recommend, I know Andrew Wood as well, is that everyone has a copy of Fly in the emergency management industry in their back pocket to have a read around some practical solutions. But for you, Richard, Who's inspired you in terms of leadership, um, you know, post QF32 and previous to QF32? Who did you look up to?
2: That's a really good question, Josh. And I, I talk about this in Fly, the chapter on leadership, because there are many different styles of leadership. So there is no single answer to who the best leader is. Uh, there are different leaders for different, situ- different industries. Um, so depending on the industry you're in, you will tend to have a, a leader that will suit that, whether it's in a company that just makes widgets the same widgets every day or it's a company that's being innovative and making new space rockets. So what you need to do, though, is to look at the people that you respect in your industry or where you want to go. Look at the people you respect, look at their behavior patterns and their personality and set that as your target. And so it's a learning journey, and I said that during Qantas, you start as a second officer, and you have first officers above you and captains, and so you could see the captains and the you know, the personalities on the people ahead of you, and you could pick and and pick and choose the types of behaviours that they have that you respect and that work. And so it really was a massive apprenticeship to work your way up to become a captain. And by the time you get there, you you should have. Well, you, you really must have. If you if you don't have leadership skills, you will not be a captain of an aircraft. Um, to be captain of an aircraft, we we assume any pilot on the aircraft can fly it. Being in command is being able to lead the teams. So again, look at look at the skills you like, the skills you respect, and try and morph them into your behavior patterns. The leaders that that I respected, uh, there's a few. Um, there was one captain in Qantas who was very gentle and very not not a loud person. Phenomenally competent, very experienced. We actually had a, an, we had an engine failure uh, when we were flying out of uh, Frankfurt. And I was the co-pilot. He was the captain. And uh, it was actually a pleasurable experience. We just calmly went through the engine failure and we made a public address of passengers saying, look, this is a, you're getting a bonus today. You're going to see fuel coming out of the wings. This is a great photo. Fo- <laughs> this is a great photo opportunity. And have your cameras ready because it really, it, it is actually a beautiful sight. It's going to cost a $100,000 to do it. But we have to lose light in the way. And we just made we made these uh we're very comfortable, took time, we didn't rush. And and this was an emergency with an engine failure where you do have unlimited time until the fuel runs out to to get on the ground. So he his former leadership was was inspirational to me. And the next person whose leadership was inspirational is Gene Kranz. Does that ring a name ring bell to you? NASA during the Apollo, Apollo years. Yes. Uh, Apollo 1 caught fire. Gene Kranz then basically assumed leadership of all the mission controllers on the ground and he changed the culture at NASA. Without Gene Kranz resetting the culture of, of everyone at Houston, NASA would never have got to the moon because Apollo 1 was a, a terrible failure with lots of problems exposed. Gene changed the whole culture, and they got Neil Armstrong to the moon, and then there was Apollo 13, they had to, which is the most successful failure ever. Uh, they got 12 people to the moon and back. They didn't lose one. And when Neil Armstrong – let me just explain. when If, if every component on the Saturn V, uh, Apollo 11 sort of mission – was had a 99.5, 99.9% accuracy uh, or survival rate, then that would mean that on that Apollo 11 flight where the, they had about 10 million parts on it, that they could expect 10,000 failures. You can't practice for 10,000 failures. That's impossible. But what you can train is to be resilient. And so when Neil Armstrong's coming down to the moon and he's getting 1201, 1202 errors, which they didn't know what it was about, and there being all these alarm bells going off and he's coming down to the moon. He's got 500 million people on earth watching him on television. And he's in charge of flying. They're in a no man's land with what this emergency was. But he recognized that number one, you never abort or you never take action for a single indication. You always need some other indication to confirm something's wrong before you react because any single sensor can fail. So he kept flying and he navigated and he landed took over control manually, and so he was able to take over control and land the very first digital fly-by-wire system ever produced by humanity, and it was designed for Apollo. He took over, flew that manually, landed, and uh, didn't didn't abort, and that is an incredible resilience, and the elements of his resilience are the same as the elements for your resilience wherever you are in the crisis management sphere if you if you want to survive and you need knowledge training experience teamwork leadership decision making crisis management and risk and you need to understand post traumatic stress this will affect you personally corporately and nationally and if you understand these things You won't just survive a crisis, but you will actually thrive in the good times.
0: The post-traumatic stress is something I really want to touch on in our final question, but I've got one more quick follow-up just to go through first. And it's something that I think a perception that when I get onto a plane, I keep thinking that the captain, the pilot or the the co-pilot and all the cabin crew are friends and have worked with each other for decades. In an incident management team, we get together and it's often people from different agencies and um, I'm imagining Turkey or in Syria at the moment, it's people coming together from all across the world to help in a disaster people haven't worked together before they're all new and they have to kind of get on the same page quite quickly what's it like in the in the cockpit are you all um colleagues for decades or are many of you working together for the first time i think on qf32 there was a couple of people hadn't worked with before and how does that bond work to get to such a uh, a routinized way of flying in such a quick way with a team you haven't worked with before
2: Okay, in the Qantas organization, we have some procedures that apply that 99% of the time. 1% of the time, the procedures don't apply. You have to create a novel solution for what's being given to you. Um, so pilots are trained to be procedural. Just follow the checklists, follow the instructions, and then 1% of the time, they have to be totally different personalities where they're using their elements of resilience to create a novel event to make enough things work so they can survive. They don't have to fix everything. They just got to fix enough to survive. Two different skill sets. Now, so when I get on an aircraft, I would say to the other pilot, I don't know you, I've never flown with you, and I actually don't care much about your personality but I expect you to follow the standard operating procedures. Now, if you do it, I will do it, and we both know what we'll be doing at different times and what we're going to say, and we'll be in perfect harmony. I will try and be absolutely SOP, and if you are too, we'll get on just fine. Um, And that's how I start the flight. So during QF32, I'd flown with one pilot twice, and there were five pilots on the aircraft out of the four, Uh, I had not flown with two of them before, and I'd only flown with Matt once and Dave, or Matt twice and Dave once. But I tell people the most safest flight you could have is when you have never flown with the other pilot. Because what that means is you you say, just follow SOPs. I don't, the more you you work with one individual, the more you will deviate, the more you accept their deviances, you normalize these deviances. And before you know it, you're doing something totally non-SOP and you're becoming a risk to yourself and everyone else around you. So the safest flight is when we've never flown with anyone else before. As to merging in with some crew that's come from another operation or another country, that is something we didn't have to do in aviation. Uh, But aviation generally is a rule with air traffic control rules and rules of the air. They're published. Everyone can see them. So we are aware of that. But in terms of a really close-knit crew just operating purely on SOPs, uh, that would be hard if you've got international people. Mm.
0: I think that uh, rules us, Josh, out for flying aircraft together <laughs> just so. a little bit.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I just want to wrap this up, and I think you you touched about this. Uh, you touched on this just before. Is about um, you know at the end of the day, crisis management takes a toll. Whether you're in the aviation industry, whether you're uh, working in incident management or, or, or crisis management, you know these things take tolls on us and it can have long lasting impacts and obviously you went through quite a confronting and catastrophic event, you know, with what QF32 was. How have you in terms of a, from a personal resilience point of view, how did you deal with that? You know, the months afterwards and and years leading on from that, from that event?
2: Great question. Um, I think Qantas didn't have a clue about people suffering post-traumatic stress. Most people don't understand post-traumatic stress. You're not trained for it in school, university, in your home, but everyone's going to suffer post-traumatic stress when they lose a the loved one or something terrible happens. And then what happens is the amygdala fires in to to create the fear response, and the uh the the brain changes behavior when you've had had fears. Um, the Hippocampus, it's meant to manage memories, gets damaged and it means that uh, your memory doesn't get consolidated properly, that your fears stay in active memory, you have nightmares, every night they reoccur and uh, if you don't normalise those, then they'll stay with you forever. Men certainly hold their emotions inside, women don't. If you grieve these problems that happen and share them, that's a good way to normalise these will take these bad memories and now overwrite them with something good because you're talking about it with some friends that can give you happy experiences. So in the case of me after QF 32, I found myself going into a a, a series of hypervigilance where I couldn't concentrate on anything else. I could read a, a sentence, but not take in a single word. I wouldn't listen to hear people talking. I was sad. I wasn't eating. I lost weight. I was doing what ifs. You know, what if I had done the flight this way? I mean, no one was injured on QF thirty two, but I did countless what ifs. And maybe I I could have done it differently, had done a better job, and so and there were lots of the what ifs would end up in everyone being killed. So the I would be conscious of this during the day, then I would dream it at night and I'd wake up exhausted. So this is a classic case of post-traumatic stress. And that could apply to veterans coming home from war where they've seen things that they can't discuss with their loved ones because no one would understand it. There were things that the veterans did that they were ashamed of that no one would want to know about. And the only people they could talk to were their uh, mates, their, their um the other soldiers, but they don't see them very much because they're in a the home by themselves because they're suffering stress. So the, the locked-in perception, the locked-in behaviour of suffering post-traumatic stress is real. It happens to anyone who's been for, through a crisis and people need, if we understand the physiology of the brain, we understand why it can persist forever. And we know that some of these veterans from this even the Second World War have never got, they've never vocalised what was causing their stress. They've never had it Managed and so that those nightmares continue to the end of their lives. Of the half the pilots that I wrote about in my first book, QF32, half of those pilots contacted me to tell me that they've suffered post traumatic stress from their, their incidents that I wrote about and they still suffer nightmares today. Half of those people have not recovered from the post traumatic stress, which really alarmed me. And so we have to understand there's a whole chapter on the second most asked question about my QF 32 book was about post-traumatic stress. And I wrote three pages on it. I wrote a whole chapter and fly about it uh, because everyone's going to suffer at some stage. We need to know why we need to understand it. And there can be recovery from post-traumatic stress. You can manage the stresses, recover from them and it's a bit like failure. you know we say we should fail fast, fail well, you learn uh, change and then try again. Well, we can recover from post-traumatic stress. We can recover from it and a bit like stepping stones, uh, failures are stepping stones to success in a business. The recovery from post-traumatic stress, if we do it properly, can actually, we can actually come out better than we were before. and this is the ultimate proof of resilience to learn from our own failures.
0: Wow, yeah, a lot to think about in that. And I think that's a lot of um, a lot of emergency managers have gone through pretty traumatic times, whether it's the last 12 months with the number of disasters we've had, whether it's COVID, whether it's a time before that. And I think there's a sense of I think still that people don't want to talk about these sort of issues. So, as you said, I think talking to your friends and colleagues is certainly the first step and it's probably a long journey for some of these people to understand how they how they deal with that
2: given that I'm talking to emergency response people, I I would expect that everyone is going to be suffering some sort of traumatic memory. And if they don't process these, they need to talk to their loved ones or seek professional help. You can recover if you have nightmares if you have any nightmares that continue if you can't get rid of these terrible thoughts or experiences there is a way to recover from them you can seek professional help and you can recover and so talk to your loved ones and by the same token if someone comes up and tells you that suffering post traumatic stress they're being vulnerable and humble and you should it's a sign of respect that they're telling you this so please be empathetic and compassionate believe them and help them to seek Uh, professional help because you can recover from post-traumatic stress.
0: So Richard, thanks so much for joining us today. We've learned so much from you and I think our listeners have as well. It's been really interesting to kind of take all that information around your aircraft and aviation career and apply that to emergency management, I'm sure. There's plenty more questions and for those interested to jump online. If anyone interested, the books are Fly and QF32, available from your favourite bookstore and we'll also put a link a link on our website at memyselfdisaster.com. Richard DeCrepani, thanks so much for joining us on Me, Myself and Disaster.
2: Thanks, Josh. Thanks, Andrew. Great to be on the program. And I send my best wishes to everyone out there trying to prepare and survive and help people in crisis. And also there is a website uh, for the fly and QF32 where you can ask questions if you wish and I'll happily answer them. And uh, if you can't find the book in the bookstore, then you can also buy it there.
0: And those links are on our website. Thanks, Richard, again. We'll talk to you soon. That's all we have time for on the show
1: today. Join us again next time as we talk to more interesting guests from across the world about their experiences during disasters. We'll catch you then.
0: Thanks for listening to Me, Myself, and Disaster. Subscribe today at memyselfdisaster.com.